Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Raggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Lone War Journal. This is Generation Jihad, the podcast that covers all things in what used to be known as the global war on terror, but we now call the long war. Today's Friday. So, of course, my co-host, Ben Ben Talablu, who's a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies, where he focuses on Iranian security and political issues, as well as the Shia militias backed by Iran, just anything related to Iran and what it's getting flaws in Benham knows. So, Benham, of course, great to have you back on. A lot to talk about today. Yes, indeed. It's a pleasure, as always. Uh, we like to say Freaky Fridays here. Can't get freakier than the first ever historic use of force since October 7 by uh, the U.S. and U.K. against the Houthis. Yeah, absolutely. That was, um, you know, I, I think we were waiting for this, right? The U.S. and uh, at the time it was 12 other countries. I think some other countries have signed on to this. They issued a threat uh, to the Houthis saying, you know, that the attacks had to stop. You know, at some point they had to put up or shut up on this threat. The Houthis launched three attacks on shipping since including uh, a pretty significant one that was Monday night, Tuesday morning, hard to tell with the time change and everything, where they launched the 18 drones and a couple of anti-ship ballistic missiles and, a, and as well as a anti-ship cruise missile at uh, ships, U.S. warships and, uh, and merchant vessels that were attempting to navigate the Red Sea. I think that uh, after that happened, the U.S. and, and its coalition, which includes the UK and several other countries, they were forced to respond um, and respond. They did last night. Uh, it's still hard to determine exactly what happened here, but uh, I'll do my best to um, based on what we've seen. Um, it appears the US launched at least somewhere around 80 to 100 Tomahawk uh, uh, ground attack cruise missiles. They were launched from ships and submarines. There were F-16s and F-18s. F-18s, of course, are launched from aircraft carriers. Um, F-16s would be launched uh, very likely out of al Udaid Air Base, which is in uh, Qatar. Um, and uh, I believe the Brits also had Typhoon fighters. I'm not sure where they would be stationed out of. They, they, they conducted attacks at least five different locations that I could determine, five to seven locations. I think areas outside of Yemeni, um, five Yemeni cities, and the targets included... Uh, radars, which be which would be used to guide uh, missiles, as well as for air defense. Air defense sites were were hit. Um, some storage facilities, likely for drones, and um, some launch facilities uh, for the anti ship and um, uh, ballistic missiles and the anti ship cruise missiles. Um, we you know we don't know the number of targets. We obviously Beno and I are not sitting in a skiff somewhere getting um, you know battle damage assessment from these strikes. Um, but, uh, uh, the number I saw was at least six Houthi fighters were killed and five wounded. That's what the Houthis are saying. Anyway, we don't really know. Um, if that is true, given the number of missiles that were launched, it's very clear that the U S was targeting weapons systems and facilities and not training facilities, command and control centers, things like that, where people are actually going to be killed. Um, this is pretty consistent the way the u.s has done targeting in iraq and syria against the iranian-backed shia militias so again a lot we don't know that's what we can tell from the open source and, and from talking to folks 
So, Bannon, what's your initial reaction to last night's strike? Are you surprised by it? Are you expecting this? And uh, what do you think the, the effectiveness of these of the strikes was based on what you could tell? You know, all, all great questions. And a couple of things leading into the strike, just to remind the audience of uh, at least 24, 25 of these maritime harassment attacks, almost all of them unsuccessful in terms of physically striking uh, these commercial tankers, but a lot of the bombs, particularly the suicide drones exploding near them, causing some injuries, uh, but not really sinking ships, but doing enough to translate an economic cost into a political cost, which is to say, you've had a lot of oil price volatility, you've had a lot of insurance premium skyrocketing, you've had major firms continue to hold off on Red Sea traffic, you've had an impediment to the east-west global trade by sea, which has grown in importance, uh, given that the east-west north corridor by air has been already affected by the Russia-Ukraine war for quite some time now. All of these things uh, factor in. But the Houthis, a first observation, uh, even with an Iranian ship allegedly functioning as a spy ship helping and targeting, uh, were unable to physically destroy uh, these commercial tankers. So that is one success for Operation Prosperity Guardian, though it's a success probably midwife by poor Houthi or poor Iranian targeting. Uh, well, and also been on that point too, the US and, and Brits and French have been shooting missiles out of the sky too. So we don't know how many of them actually would have been successful exactly. strikes. If the they denial umbrella yeah. set up by uh, Operation Prosperity Guardian in that sense was successful. Uh, we could say the cost of it may not have been given what we have to fire to intercept what they uh, have been firing, let alone the cost of probably what we may have had uh, to bear for the strike last night, uh, depending on the munitions and again, the aircraft involved. That could have been actually quite financially uh, expensive for us. So good for the audience to know that. That's number one, just the background. Two is the Saudi issue. I mean, if I was the Houthis right now, I'd be seriously considering the utility of breaking the ceasefire with Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia clearly could not win when it had the resolve uh, to win in Yemen and when it had more international support with that stuff having dissipated uh, from it. And reports of, Dece of last December with the Saudis pressing the Americans to not push the Houthis too hard. I think the strike last night was a long time coming, was historic but raises a lot more questions than answers. Meaning, do we have a Yemen policy? Are we finally gonna designate the Houthis as an FTO? Uh, do we know where the rest of the storage depots of the weapons and drones were located? Don't we remember that the Houthis were able to assemble in the field Iranian SRBMs while fighting an international coalition supported by formerly American ISR? And do we have now, in terms of the capabilities in the region, not just that architecture of denial, and clearly not just a willingness, or at least a short-term capability to punish with airstrikes and, and these Tomahawk cruise missiles you mentioned, but do we have the dynamic ISR uh, needed to see exactly when and where uh, the Houthis are lighting up and firing these anti-ship cruise missiles and anti-ship ballistic, ballistic missiles and also the drones from the back of these rail launchers and truck launchers do we so we can return fire to the point of origin immediately kind of like something we need to be doing in iraq a lot better of so this is also a question um if deterrence is not just uh uh deterrence is not just going to be restored overnight i certainly think the houthis will respond i also think they have responded there's reports of an attack on a british ship i don't know if it's a military vessel or a commercial vessel just yet but that is breaking um i have my serious concerns as to if the houthis push us again uh how will we respond where will we respond and 
uh, at what point are we going to consider responding against something they and the Iranians hold dear, which is that spy ship or against, you know, more direct Houthi command and control? Um, taking out these capabilities is one thing, and I think it's necessary, but I don't think it's anywhere sufficient. And obviously, this strike is already going to cause a cacophony of voices on the American left and right, thinking that we're escalating the war. We're not even achieving parity with this strike. We're not even 24, 25 to 1 is not at all uh, uh, fair. But there will be voices saying that this is an escalation. And I think the Houthis and the Iranians, uh, and I think, for lack of a better word, some useful idiots here will be intent on fanning the flames of Biden is escalating when escalation is the farthest thing from Biden's not just mind, but capability at the moment. Yeah, it's, it's, it should be very clear to that audience that the Biden administration has gone out of its way. 27 attacks against international shipping. I don't even know if this number includes the strikes that were attempted against U.S., British and French warships, as well as attacks against Israel. Um, I'm guessing when you add all of that together. Um, you're probably in the 40s to 50s before the U and nearly two months before the U.S. responded. So if this, if people want to interpret this as the U.S. being eager to jump in the war with the Houthis, there nothing could be further from the truth here. You know, another point I wanted to make too. I, you know, I think this is a problem that um, is uh, borne out from Hollywood when people think of our military and our ability to target and destroy our enemies' capabilities. This is really going to get it dumbed down a little bit. But, um, you know, as the U.S. was failing in Afghanistan, the U.S. military is putting out, um, helping produce the Transformers movies. And if any of you have ever seen those, they're silly. It's turn your brain off movie, you know, movies and, and just drool and, you know, look at action. But, you know, there's this one scene, and I forget which movie because they're all the same, frankly, where the U.S. military is deploying to the Sinai, to the pyramids, and all of this stuff just coalesces out of nowhere. All of this equipment and helicopters and, and fighters, and there's a you know a general-looking general issuing stern commands, and it really doesn't work this way. The, the Houthis control 135 miles uh, straight-line distance of coast, and I don't know how many thousands of square miles that the U.S., that's what you were alluding, you were talking about, Benham, right? Do we have the ISR to watch this, to watch the Houthis set up? And then can we react quick enough? Are we going to be able to maintain combat air patrols over northern and central Yemen when the Houthis possess um, anti-aircraft missile systems, both shoulder-launched as well as established, um, air, you know, air-to-air um, air, um, ground to air missile systems. This is and and are we willing to do this over a long period of time? Because that's what would be needed to be. That is what is needed to be done if we were serious about halting the Houthis' abilities to stop. But I think what we're witnessing here is and, and look, this can change. I can be and I could certainly be wrong. We're, whenever we're looking at this, we're trying to read the tea, the tea leaves. But there was a quote from a U.S. official um, in a story last night. I think it was in Task and Purpose. Um, and the official, uh, it was a senior administration official told the reporter there, this, there is no intent to escalate the situation End quote there. That's what we've seen in Iraq. Um, we've seen, and again, we've seen similar type targeting. Now this was certainly far more robust than anything we've seen in Iraq, but similar targeting again, not many Houthis killed zero targeting of Houthi leadership, which I think would need to go hand in hand with targeting the um, military capabilities. So. 
this is um if you if we were serious about preventing Houthi um or you know just they also said they wanted to de- degrade Houthi capabilities if we were serious about degrading capabilities the strikes wouldn't have ended last night now certainly it's possible there's another round that's coming up within the hour we're recording this on Friday January 12th when Ben and I are talking about this that could all a lot can change between now and when this is published and when you listen to this um but what we've witnessed particularly you know I I think it's you look at patterns you look how people operate look how governments operate look at how the US has operated in Iraq and Syria responding to what's now over 130 strikes against US personnel it took up to 115 before the U.S. actually targeted a mid-level commander of a Shia militia in Baghdad. I don't think the U.S. is going for broke with this round of strikes. That could all well change if there are more attacks on shipping. But at this point in time, I think the administration is hoping to message the uh, the Houthis that they want this to, to wind down. Again, I contend this isn't the way you do it. Um, I think this is the opposite of what you, this is, has the opposite effect, um, and it encourages them to conduct more attacks. But, you know, I'm not in the employee of the U.S. government or the Biden. Right? No, and, and neither am I. Um, but also, I'm not one to, I'm not saying you're doing this, but just I'm trying to be cognizant of the tea leaves. I'm not one to uh, impose my definition of the national interest and public good on what the, a new consensus definition of what the national interest and public good seems to be, particularly after large swaths of the population who may feel underrepresented uh, paid the price economically in terms of blood uh, for the past two and a half decades that you have covered extensively in uh, Afghanistan and Iraq with the global war on terror, with everything LWJ covers extensively and doesn't feel like there's a win, and rightly to some degree, doesn't want to put a loaded gun in a shaky hand. Uh, and that that's fundamentally my issue with the plethora of pieces I see coming out, not against you know more ISR, not against targeting an Iranian spy ship, not against targeting Houthi leadership, all of which I think fall within the scope of more than what happened last night, and much less than what I see people just rushing to call for, which is, okay, decapitation strike against the Ayatollahs in Tehran. There is no straight line in human history from losing to the Taliban, un- being unable to deter Hamas, Hezbollah, the Iraqis, and the Houthis, and then taking on the world's foremost state sponsor of terrorism directly. This is not to make the Islamic Republic into some macho uh, force, which it's not at all. But given that these interests are localized for them, they're going to spend a lot more blood and treasure. And every single one of these battlefields we find ourselves in, or in fact, the Israelis also find themselves in, are quickly shaping up to be tests of resolve, not tests of capability. Um, For instance, I would be more worried about um, other militias, perhaps even Hezbollah, uh, about what they could do in response to more Israeli airstrikes, given their surface-to-air missile capabilities. I'm less worried about Houthi surface-to-air missile capabilities. I'm more worried about Houthi surface-to-surface or anti-ship capabilities. So I think we do have more, for lack of a better word, room for maneuver uh, to do these punishment strikes against the Houthis. So the fact that it took 24, 25-plus major maritime harassment attempts, which you rightly mentioned, could have been much more lethal had Operation Prosperity Guardian and before that Task Force 153 uh, not been in the area to intercept and deny uh, success for Houthi munitions, had all of that not really been there, we would have been probably dragged into this, uh, I think, much earlier. But this means that the kind of attacks that we see that take out Houthi capabilities should be happening much more frequently and 
without this predicate of 24, 25 attacks. I don't want to see us back ended into a position of replicating the failed Iraq-Syria playbook uh, in Yemen, where it is only a political incentive to get part of the right to shut up that you do something abroad. And in essence, uh, you always settle for option B, which is the worst of all options. Politically, the right's not going to reward you. Politically, you're going to have the ascendant, the fringe left and right, which is seeing this as escalation, even though it is not even achieving parity, come after you. And you will have done something abroad, which may beget a chain effect, and you may not be ready to carry out the second, carry out and offset the strikes needed to deter the second and third order consequences of those, uh, the, uh, of such a strike. So again, the administration always seems to be settling for, let's take the baby bear approach. Let's, let's go for, uh, let's go for <laughs> something that is, uh, palatable, that sends a signal. I mean, what kind of strike? Uh, begins with about a month of leaks that they're mulling over a strike. Um, perhaps that perhaps they wanted the press to do more deterrence work for them than them. You know, the fact that since mid-December, people were saying, okay, this situation is untenable. Perhaps they hoped that, I don't know, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, or whoever else was covering this uh, would have spooked the Houthis. And clearly they were unspooked. And then even when a strike was essentially definite, all these leaks coming out, other than having perhaps civilians or uh, Houthi uh, uh, weapons engineers or military officials leave garrisons and bases and depots so that the strike has exactly what you just mentioned, which is what, five, six casualties. Other than that, I'm not sure what is this huge telegraphed uh, situation that we've had with the U.S. use of force in the region. I think we need to go to a position where you don't even have the press release. I'm going to take a moment i was reading an article this just popped in my head as we were talking about yoav galan who is the um one of the israel's now is he their defense minister in the in the cabinet i apologize uh i'm sort of going on the on the fly here um but so and they started talking about deterrence and one of the things you know, he says is that's discussed in there is after the Israeli withdrawal from southern Lebanon. And some of the thinking, you know, the thinking of the Israeli government was, well, you know, we could accept a level level of Hezbollah um, attacks against northern Israel. And, and some Israeli military officials is like, look, you don't understand the neighborhood, the neighborhood that we live in, you know, understands force. And basically they're saying we need to be seen as the the crazy landlord right if you strike you attack this town we're going to destroy this infrastructure if you attack this we'll target that and we'll just keep you know and they're talking about escalation and deterrence right and unfortunately you know the israelis did not go that route they you know ultimately end up seizing seizing gaza to to hamas eventually but hamas control and it just got me thinking about that but you know ben there's some one thing that uh, you had said um, about um, will and capability. I think the, I, I disagree with you a little bit on the Israelis. The Israelis have the will, um, at the, particularly now after October 7th, to do what needs to be done. They don't have the capabilities. They have, you know, the reason they haven't taken on Hezbollah right now is because they want to finish up and get Gaza to a certain point before they can tackle the North because they have manpower issues, because they have weapons issues, you know, issues of, munitions that they need to get from the U.S. They have to balance the U.S. pressure to dial things back. And the Israelis certainly don't have, they have the ability to, to conduct assassinations. 
cyber attacks, even possibly limited strikes, airstrikes in, in Iran. But the Israelis don't have the capabilities to launch a sustained campaign. Let's say they wanted to eliminate Iran's nuclear program. They, they can't do that. Um, uh, go after, you know, military, whatever, a sustained campaign in Iran. The Israelis, you know, it's a small country of 10, 11 uh, million people. It has a limited size military. It has a limited size airports. Yes, they can they can defend their borders by projecting power far beyond them is something that is very difficult for the Israelis to do. I'm just curious your thoughts. on. No, I, I actually agree with that. I didn't mean to give that impression. But largely, uh, I see happening is that, yeah, the, the wars of the Middle East still remain wars of will, wars of resolve. Um, sometimes, and this is this is not me, this is straight out of Thomas Schelling. I, I forget if it's arms and influence or strategy of conflict, but with the Israelis and the people they're fighting and with us and the people we're fighting and in general, the people that even the Saudis have had to take on, um, the shelling line is some, and I'm paraphrasing, sometimes the absorption of pain is just as impressive of the, as the infliction of it. So the ability of an adversary, the Israelis face this challenge where it's not just even their capability and intent, it's the ability of the adversary to still be standing and the Israeli preference for the mowing of the lawn uh in every theater with lebanon with syria and with gaza in the past so i think there's a high level of israeli resolve i think yeah there's a mismatch between certain capabilities but they're more capable compared to the adversary that they're fighting oh absolutely yes yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's that's the you know, I, I meant that in relative terms sure not, not, not absolutely i mean could we imagine if the israelis had the u.s capability right the actual size of the military the military nine aircraft ten aircraft. i think they spend more per gdp Per, but I still think, you know, both countries, the U.S. and Israel, this is probably an unpopular opinion, should be spending even more given the challenges that they face. Um, but that's a, that's another question for another day. But yeah, I and on the U.S. Know, spending, I think we we spend far too much because we don't spend it efficiently and we don't spend that it might the right be a thing. prioritization. But, I mean, when, when your defense budget is greater than the rest of the world's put together and we're having the problems that we have today, that isn't a problem of money. That's a problem of priorities and problem of how it's being allocated um, but again that's a whole nother issue um but yeah so um uh, so benham do you think though, again we're trying to read tea leaves here and i don't mean I, I hate putting you on the spot i know i put my i'll put my i've put myself out there do you think that um at this moment it, it, do you think the u.s is planning another series of strikes that the u.s is looking to significantly degrade capabilities or are we waiting for the next round to I would as say we have done there's two reasons right now why the u.s would be considering perhaps another one of these joint strikes and perhaps sooner than we think i'm not reading the tea leaves as much as i'm just trying to connect a few dots here but one is um the saudis once they began their operation in yemen kind of wanted to copy a gulf war one model and do like a scud hunting mission to make sure that the long-range stuff that even then president Saleh had couldn't be used against them. The fact that the Houthis still have Tachkas, which was the only solid propellant system that was a ballistic missile that uh, uh, Saleh had, and still parade those Tachkas as of September 2022 and September 2023, shows you how ineffective that missile hunting mission was. Um, so what we have now is also our own version of a missile hunting mission. I think no matter the size of the depots, I heard stories of several uh, that we hit the other night, um, I think there's plenty more. 
you know, Yemen was already the Arab world's poorest country, already very centrally divided, uh, already awash in Russian, Chinese, North Korean, and Soviet weapons. Then you layer on that Iranian element since 2014, 2015, the tech, the reverse engineering, uh, the the trafficking of uh, materials, the, the field welding that the Houthis have been able to do compared to the factory welding of some of these missiles that we've seen from Iran. And the fact that a lot of these other weapons are traditionally called weapons of the week. You know, ISIS, I always say this, could fight... 80 some odd member coalition between Iraq and Syria and still innovate and produce some kind of quadcopter drones uh, and still also use and develop IRAM. So you don't need a lot of space for some of this stuff. So because of that cognizance and that terrain and that lack of ISR on that coastline, like you were talking about, um, I'm sure those people in the skiffs know that there is stuff left on the chopping block. And uh, given the analogies we have drawn, and I'm sure the administration wants more people to not draw, which is that, are we copy-pasting the Iraq-Syria sporadic strike one-off playbook here? Um, there is an intent to show deterrence the way you know you and I have talked about it, which is punishment over time. We have the will to carry out strikes that generates punishment over time. So Houthis, you go, we will go. Uh, and it could be an attempt to begin to change the response ratio. Uh, to say, yeah, it may have been 25-1 for like three months, but now it's going to be 25 or 26-2 in three months in like 10 days. Uh, so it could be an attempt to signal that. Don't think that we're going to copy-paste this strategy. Don't think you can coast like your friends in Iraq and Syria. Um, and those, are, I think, are two drivers uh, for why we may see another strike sooner than we think. Yeah, you know, I, if, if I wouldn't be, I'm inclined to believe we're copy-pasting, as you know, as you mentioned. Because we, as in Iraq, we keep saying we don't want to escalate. And that, that to me is a tell. Um, if they had launched this strike and not mentioned escalation and or desire to not do so, um, I'd be a little more convinced that uh, they may be serious. And, you know, I'm going to say another thing, Ben. I mean, at least with Iraq and Syria, the U.S. has some significant political constraints. The Iraqi upsetting the Iraqi government, the size of the U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria, and that they're really dependent, particularly the U.S. bases in Iraq are dependent on the Iraqis for um, permission to be there. So launching strikes in Iraq is a lot more politically difficult. There's no constraints whatsoever within um, Yemen. We have nothing holding Absolutely. us back. It's even less than Syria. And, and, and Yeah, even, right, exactly, Ben. I'm right, far less than Syria. It's a great point. And With yet we've been copy. the most reserved there. This is what tell, you know, again, these are, uh, I could be wrong. They may be changing their calculus and how they're going to try to deal with this problem. But given the reluctance that we've seen for nearly almost two months now, uh, the first attack with the attack was on, and that's when they took over a ship um, with a helicopter assault, um, was on November 19th, I believe that was. So that's just a week short of two months that it took that long for us to respond, it really tells me they just don't want, you know, they said it, we don't want to escalate. And that's, you know, that's no way to run deterrent. And it's, these are, these are contravening forces. So, you know, the ability to not make it look like Iraq and Syria, the largely open source and probably high side Intel that is pointing to, yeah, you still left stuff on the chopping block. So the technical and the political thing saying, yeah, you should probably do something else coupled with, or running up against exactly what you said, which is the, beyond the politics of the situation leads to these kinds of okay papa bear mama bear no baby bear approach okay let's split the difference let's do let's do a strike but weigh it down with a leak or let's do a strike but then have a have a press release that uh 
that weight that that politically dampens the need for the adversary to escalate or respond. I mean, you can just look at the conflicting statements by the White House and CENTCOM. You know, one talks about Iran, what one doesn't. It's an entirely different world the administration versus the folks on the ground uh, are living in. The only caveat I would really make here, again, which is actually on on your side, because um, you mentioned the politics of Iraq, and we always talk about the free fire zone of Syria. And the and and then even freer fire zone of Yemen comes with one caveat, which is the Saudis. You know, don't forget about the Saudis. The Saudis are moving towards an old model. You know, we say this as friends of anyone who is friends of any U.S. government in the region, but they're moving towards an old model of pay to play, where the old school model of Saudi Arabia U.S. relationship from that carrier on with the FDR was you know energy for security that's the kind of textbook business card most simplistic cliff notes version of the foundations of that relationship well the energy trade is going in the exact opposite direction today uh the security side is still uh seen as it's more beneficial to be under washington's security umbrella politically diplomatically all those alliances are still with the west but there's a lot more flirtation with the east with russia china there's a bit of a personal affinity there as well america does business in a, in a very kind of fickle way both with arms sales and political relationship and the, the the ping pong of the left and the right and the white house versus the the congress it's something that befuddles many allies in the region um, from the Shah back in the 70s to everything that uh, we, we see today. And the reason I'm mentioning this is because despite the Saudis, you know, more than, you know, five, six years ago, pressing different administrations, Obama, uh, Trump, uh, and early Biden to help them uh, in Yemen and on Yemen, both in image and in on the ground and in intel and in targeting. Um, now they're pressing them to say, no, 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 please don't do anything again, based on reports from late November, early December, because of the fears of an escalation from the Houthis and an end to the ceasefire. So if the Saudis are moving into the pay-to-play world, hey, they just you know made friends with the patron of the Houthis. And you had a decrease in the attacks on Saudi territory. I don't think that stuff is an accident. You had the ceasefire, you had America and Saudi turning a blind eye to the weapons the Houthis were parading uh, annually amid these ceasefires. Uh, there was no need to talk about taking out these newfound capabilities. There was a hope that the, you know, close your eyes, say a prayer, pay to play policy uh, would yield fruit. And really, there is going to be uh, some kind of major issue uh, for U.S. diplomacy in the region if the Houthis decide to start striking Saudi Arabia and Saudi Arabia is going to be left there uh, not having been able to defeat the Houthis in the past, having very little confidence in a Western partner to militarily take on the Houthis. and. Again, trying to do what it's doing on the ground, which is changing society and Vision 2030. And you can't do that stuff while you're under a barrage of heavy weaponry, uh, like what the Houthis have and what the Iranians could threaten. So again, it, when you're surrounded by a sea of people who don't mind destruction, it's very hard to be an engineer and a construction person and a building per and, and, and a builder. And that's the irony of Saudi Arabia and Israel right now versus the axis that they face. And the the wishy washiness of America in this sense has not helped it at all. So I'm I'm just glad we're alive. Just like back in the day, I'm glad. I think in 2016, John Kerry and John McCain wrote an op-ed about the need to support Vietnam, even though both these guys fought in Vietnam. 
Um, you know, now the Saudis, after having trying to get us to beat the Houthis, are afraid of escalation. And they may be walking into a room with an open door already, because all you need to tell uh, Sullivan, Biden, Blinken, Burns uh, in this administration is we don't want escalation. And trust me, that'll delay the next strike uh, <laughs> until kingdom come. Yeah, and listen, as much as, you know, I don't trust the Saudis, I don't blame them here. And you had said it, given the wishy-washiness of prior administrations and this administration, you can't blame the Saudis for for looking for other options, for regressing to an old style of foreign policy. And, um, you know, the, the, the odd thing is, is clearly the Saudis granted overflight rights for U.S. aircraft as well as refueling aircraft to launch these strikes into uh, uh into northern yemen so they've put themselves out there on this um the the houthis know it the iranians know it and uh, that that should make things interesting for them as well absolutely well benham do you have anything else before we wrap up for the day I, know, I think we should just keep our eyes peeled on on how and when the next Houthi response is. And again, this is a Friday afternoon. We may see uh, another U.S. strike. We may not. Um, I just think we're going to have to read more than the tea leaves. We're going to have to read the headlines to find out. Yeah, no, these, these are certainly interesting times. And, um, I, you know, either is possible. Benham, thanks for having a great discussion today. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for today's episode of Generation Jihad. Just a reminder, you can find us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review. Thanks again. We'll see you all again soon.